listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Featuring our podcast, One More Thing. Get more info at armstrongandgetty.com. From the dispatch, and it's presented without comment. The CEO of Kroger, that's the grocery store chain. Kroger Kroger's. Which controls a whole bunch of grocery stores across the country. I believe it's the largest grocery chain in the, in the United States. I think you're right. It's damn big. We can all agree on that. <laughs> the CEO of Kroger said, Customers will have meat during the coronavirus pandemic so long as they are flexible. Um, it's a good thing you started stretching, Jack. Um, What does that mean? Me! <laughs> Or squeak, squeak. Oh, boy. It'd be eating bats like the damn Chinese. Huh? What? There'll be meat as long as consumers are willing to be flexible. You need to explain that statement. <laughs> well, it's it's, an, it's a new cut of steak. The armpit steak. <laughs> Taken right out of the cow's pit. I don't know. They're introducing wet markets. No, I, yeah, I, exactly. I, I, Kroger's I, introducing wet markets. I do think that uh, the uh, your Beyond Kroger, Meats, Kroger. your Impossible Meats, the 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 lab created meat products are are seeing this as an opportunity and uh, and are trying to capitalize on it. And if they, <laughs> we don't have livestock, we just make all our stuff in the yeah. lab. And, well, yeah. keep keep your eye on the population of your uh, county shelters. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, amen to that. How about the, uh, they called uh, bull balls uh, prairie oysters? Didn't it? Wasn't that the Rocky Mountain oysters? Rocky Mountain oysters. Yeah. You're gonna start getting a uh, prairie uh, calamari, <laughs> except that little ring isn't gonna be a squid tentacle. It's gonna be the cows. You know what? Zanus. Mm. Yeah, yeah, we get it. Does be flexible mean we are competing on fear factor now? Is, yeah. that, is that what yeah. this means? That's what I wonder. Well, you got to be flexible, as in running around on all fours, catching it yourself, and eating it raw. <laughs> all right. Uh, so um, my my strange introduction related to the fact that uh, I was I'm closing tabs here on my laptop, and I was <laughs> about to close the Axel Rose versus Steve Mnuchin uh, Twitter war story. And, uh, and here's your new uh, cocktail party question, your uh, or your sitting around stoned question. It's it's kind of a it's it's like similar ones you've heard, but with a twist. If you could have a Twitter war between any two people, living or dead, oh, who would it be? <laughs> How about Jesus and Karl Marx? That'd be pretty good. Now that would be an interesting one. Mm. Because both talk about, you know, providing for the common man, the unfortunate man or woman. Yet very different ideas. I want Mark Twain involved because I think he would have been, I think he would have killed it on Twitter. But I don't know. Oh, yeah. He would have been great on Twitter. Yeah, I don't know who I want him versus, though. Who's his opponent in my scenario? Isaac from Love Boat. (laughs) That's one suggestion. (laughs) Michael, uh, can you turn off your microphone, please? (laughs) Um, uh, uh, Wow, Mark Twain and... Well, now, would you want it to be another uh, sharply observant humorist? I mean, like, Mark I, I wanted an H.L. Mencken and my head would explode. Oh, that that sounds awesome, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, um, I, I don't want to, I don't want to stack, I don't want him fighting a tomato can. I want to, I want a good fight. I want to, you know, I want to see what he's got. Well, that's right, because it it is a Twitter war. Or do you want them to be completely different worlds, like your Axel Rose and Steve Mnuchin? Um, I'm thinking, uh, Christopher Hitchens and Cardi B would be good. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's strong. That is strong. Uh, George Washington and AOC. 
That'd be good. Now, now that one would be intriguing. Man, I heard AOC on an interview on you get uh, Nakedly vote, Progressive Radio. Say. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> <That's> a... <laughs> Oh, well, you know what? He might honestly honestly be surprised. Uh, I heard her talking on on the the Nakedly Progressive Radio, and she is a communist. And and I'm not, like, being talk show hyperbole guy. No, she is perfectly comfortable with a 100% centrally planned economy and government control and the jailing of dissidents and all. She tap dances around some of it, uh, but, man, she is so, so, so far left. Uh, anyway, uh, this is just an excuse to do this because it's fun. Um, you know, if you want to email us, uh, your, your Twitter war ideas, that'd be fun. Mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com and we will come back and revisit that. We're still going to have podcast. meat, but consumers are going to have to be more flexible than usual. I'm telling you, I need some background on what, where you're headed with this. It's got to be like pickled pig's feet. And Do you uh, mean impossible meat like Sean's meaning? Do you mean you're going to have to realize, you know, you can't have steak every weekend being flexible? Or do you mean cat? Do you mean <laughs> other forms of yeah, meat? Yeah. Right. There you go. <laughs> hey, dinner. I'm moving in on no, Ikea's corner. I, I think maybe he means... <laughs> <laughs> never forget... Those meatballs, those meatballs may have won the Belmont Steaks. <laughs> I think what he probably means is you got a taste for pork, but it turns out there isn't any, so tonight it's chicken. Okay. Uh, yeah, that'd be awesome if that's what he means. Of things that are out there, what would be more palatable to you? For some reason, a horse steak I'd be much more willing to try. I don't think I could even take a bite of a cat. I don't know why, and it's all in my mind. It's all in my mind, but I don't even think I could... I, I almost chunder thinking about taking a bite of cat for some reason. Well, that's because it's furry. Well, and you, I know I picture the fur getting in my mouth, but mm. um, uh, let's see. How about this scenario? Hamster'd be hard to take a bite of. What? See, They're guinea tiny. pig is. I, have you ever seen? They eat guinea pig on a stick in oh. South America all oh, the time. God, yeah. it over the fire, slow roast guinea pig mm. on a stick. Tender. I feel like Tender. dog is the only thing I couldn't do. You couldn't eat a dog. I don't think so. It'd be hard for me to do too. You know, it's it, if if made by a gifted chef, and I didn't because know. I've had like like game, like elk and and deer and and goose and whatever. And uh, a buddy of mine, what what was it? It was goose kebabs we were having, and um, or was it elk kebabs? Anyway, they're just fantastic. I've also had wild game that's terrible. But if some uh, you know some master chef said to you, look, Jack, I have a number of meats here. I got some beef, I got some pork, I got some chicken, I got some horse, I got some dog, I got some guinea pig, and some cat. Now, I want you to just try this, take a little bite, and then I'll tell you what it is after. Mm. Knowing what was on the list, but not knowing which you are currently chewing on. Now, the chance that it might be a hamster or cat, I just can't. Uh, I don't know why. I don't even know why. I don't have a good rational reason for it. The dog thing, that's a gross thing. The dog thing is an emotional thing. I just, yeah, I'm just yeah. so troubled by the whole process. Well, and we've had pet guinea pigs. So it's, I mean, if you look at it, it's a chubby little, uh, I mean, it's, it's just, it's a meal on legs. But again, it's kind of tough to take the idea of it. What if the chef Not even very said, big legs. You can't get away very fast. Well, right. And they're fat. I mean, they're made to be eaten. What if the chef said, and one more meat? The most dangerous game. Oh, 
combat model. Optimum efficiency. That's weird. I feel like I'd be much easier for me to taste a human being than a cat. Why is that? What? What? I think I need to go to HR with this. (laughs) No kidding. I think you ought to call the authorities. Never mind HR. HR, call the friggin' cop shop. The FBI at my house checking my crawl space today. (laughs) Giving you Rorschach tests. What do you see here, Mr. Armstrong? How much plastic sheeting do you own? Oh, jeez. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're working with Dexter here. <laughs> Freaking butcher. <laughs> Hell. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know why. Uh, that's that's a crazy thing to say. Really? Okay. Yes. I probably should have run that by someone then. <laughs> oh, boy. Chow down. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Still don't know what a virgin pony is. Um, I'll tell you how we got into this. know about virgin olive oil or extra virgin? So we got onto this topic of uh, this Romanian billionaire who got poisoned by a hooker apparently recently. And he is an art thief and all kinds of different things. But anyway, um, he was going to orgies that had virgin ponies. And it just kind of mentioned it in passing in the story. What kind of journalist doesn't, like, put in parentheses what a virgin pony is? Right. Knowing that anybody who read that's going to say, what the hell's a virgin <laughs> pony? Yeah. <laughs> well, right. It's like uh, our favorite thing. Uh, Jones recorded the third highest total in history. And they don't tell you the number one and two. That's everybody's question. Makes me nuts. Um, uh, and, and I realize a virgin pony is a is a pony that has not known the the, the pleasure of another pony's touch, or has it? B- but but why hot, hot pony love? Why you would have it at a an orgy, or why that is something to be excited about, or pay extra for? I don't I don't get anyway. Well, I just I don't even want to think about it. What are they doing? Maybe it's one of those lost in translation problems. There are, well, I don't want No, I almost brought something up that would bring weeks of, of annoyance. Anyway, um, I was, uh, he was 69 years old when he died, and, uh, and I, I had an orgy. I mentioned the Please. idea of, I just, I'm surprised that people, you Giggity. know, pleasure seek that late into life that they don't run into the brick wall of this isn't really making me happy. So I'm going to stop trying so hard earlier. Yeah. I mean, that happened with me at a much lower level, and I just don't. Just always been surprised by people that can continue it like that. What was the character on Family Guy? The the perv? Oh, uh, Quagmire. Quagmire. Giggity. Giggity. <laughs> Giggity. Yeah, constant pleasure seeking. I don't know. Some people, I guess, can deal with that and never f- feel that aching emptiness. <laughs> or maybe the, the constant chase of those things is how they avoid that aching, the emptiness sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Is, uh, occupy yourself with... Small, achievable goals. Dif- different strokes for different folks. Like the gentle, erotic stroke of a virgin well, pony. I'm not going to say like that like I think that is in any way a good idea. or a, a that, That's been known. It's time-tested. It's a terrible way to live your life. Yeah. It is, an, it is a, a rabbit hole of nothingness. 
It's it's just a bad idea. From Buddha to Jesus and all points in between that we've been warned against that. I think it is by says the guy with no Rembrandts in his hallway. I think by definition your Pathetic. life your life is <laughs> off the rails and you're you're making a huge mistake. I'm I'm not gonna say different strokes for different folks on that one. It's a terrible stroke for every, every folk. I was just trying to set up the pony joke. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway, we got this text. Uh, it's, and, uh, I was wondering why I just, I mean, cause I tried to, you know, girls, cars, booze, trips, restaurants, all this different stuff. Try, get trying, okay, I'll do a better one. As I was making more money, I'll do a better one, and then a better one, and then a better one, and then a nicer one, and then a further one away, and then it just, and it just, it was never satisfying. And it became pretty clear to me that, okay, even if I had unlimited money, it still wouldn't make any difference. It's just none of this. In fact, the first time, I got a car was way more exciting than the most recent time. The first time I ate in a nice restaurant or stayed in a nice hotel was way more exciting than the most recent time. That's why it, you have to keep chasing higher highs. It's like a, a, a heroin addict or a porn addict. But anyway, it seemed pretty pointless to me, pretty obviously. Anyway, we got this text. It's because Jack is satisfied with the current version of himself and has other traumas occupying his attention. I will get back to that because I do think that's a factor. Some people who pleasure seek or get new cars or try to make more money aren't shallow. I think they are. Some, like me, are playing a game and want to see how great personal version they can become while risking total ruin. It's almost sociopathic and looks weird to someone who's not in the game. I get that. I think I understand what they're It's interesting that they call it almost sociopathic while trying to make the argument that it's a legitimate way to try to go about it. It's the excitement of risk. Some people are addicted to risk. Sometimes you see them plunging down uh, uh, mountain bike trails at ungodly speeds. Um, and running up on me, which is one of the reasons I stopped. Um, and, and sometimes it's, um, you know, people who just, well, it's, it's excitement addiction. Similar I've to, been, I've, yeah. Like high stakes gambling too, I think. Yeah. There scratches you go. a lot of exactly. the same itch. I've, I've figured out I'm addicted to change. I'm trying to deal with it right now. Um, like quarters and nickels. <laughs> yeah. I eat them. <laughs> You that's should not, see my record. It's not healthy, Joe. We need you. We need you to stop it. Well, you've heard about can, the change shortage in America. Can, you know what? I can pass the dimes like it's nothing, but right. those fifty cent pieces. Oh, oh boy! Oh, man. I like where this is going. Giggity, giggity, giggity. <laughs> you can hear me howling down the block. Uh, Bob, Bob, no, I'm addicted to change. The excitement of a new challenge, a new place, uh, whatever, and I just I deal with stability poorly. <laughs> Um, and I'm trying to deal with that. So I totally get people who have to have a lot risked to be interested hmm. in their day. I think I see what they're driving at. I think I get it, too. I'm just surprised that people don't recognize that that's probably not a good idea. That it will never bring real happiness. Uh, yeah, hmm. I suppose so. I, part of it's the libertarian in me. I can't spend a lot of time being worried about people I don't know or or telling them how to live. Um it's possible there are personality types that cannot find peace and fulfillment through uh, a relationship with God, a loving family, serving their community or whatever. No, you could. And that the guy billionaire... said borderline sociopathic. He might be right. Uh, well, yeah, if you're a sociopath, there's no fixing you. But I, I don't believe I believe people that aren't sociopaths. If you spent your time taking care of other people, you would be happier and you'd pretty quickly understand that. I believe that. Yeah, um, you're probably right, but um, and because it, as, as this person mentioned here, your your life is too consumed with other traumas or whatever. I am so much more content being busy all the time trying to take care of my family, particularly my special needs kid, than I've ever been in my life. 
And I don't, and, and, and it is squeezed out all the other stuff that now seems so ridiculous. Like giving a crap what car I drive or any of the other things that I used to think about endlessly. Mm-hmm. It squeezed all that out and I don't miss it a bit. And now, and now being able to look at it from a different angle, it's just like, uh, how did I ever, how did, why did I ever care about that? Right, right. Well, and, uh, you know, I'm willing to concede that. Maybe a pony made some youthful, youthful mistakes, had a couple of relationships, and been around the block a little bit, but we can still know true love. Yeah, that's that's not a bad pony. Right. <laughs> that's a pony that made bad decisions, right, and yeah. haven't we all? Yeah. So, yeah, if you're a non-virgin pony, uh, message me. Well, <laughs> you're not going to... Uh, Buff out a couple tweets and DM slide into me. those DMs. Exactly. You're not going to ad- adventurous mare shame them. <laughs> Exactly. Right. Who among us didn't make youthful uh, indiscretions? I've walked through a stable or two, sure. (laughs) I've been around the paddock. Who hasn't? (laughs) I was always chasing some stud, then I realized what I wanted was love, and then we cuddle, and then who knows what happens. Who knows? I've clip-clopped my way uh, in and out of a few stalls. I'll admit it. <laughs> Saddled them up and taken them for a ride, if you'll pardon the expression. You know, I think I can take about two more of those. <laughs> Almost time to send this metaphor to the glue factory. <laughs> Beautiful. All right, fine, I'll say it. Nay means nay. Beautiful. Nice. Well, I guess that's it. <laughs> send this metaphor to the glue factory. <laughs> oh, now, that's how good perfect. Was that. <laughs> Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Information. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Featuring our podcast, One More Thing. Available everywhere. Get more info at armstrongandgetty.com. We've talked about this on and off in various ways for years, and that is the veal cafe playgrounds of the modern era. Mm-hmm. And how um, the, uh, the the schools and parks of America have tried to craft these playgrounds where there's absolutely no risk, there's no adventure, there's no danger whatsoever, no child could ever be uh, hurt. Also and, no fun. <clears throat> exactly. And, and no learning to assess risk and learning to exercise caution in a situation with greater risk, which is one of the most important things the uh, juvenile human animal learns. That's the point of childhood and, and growing up, is you learn to assess and adjust the risk. Um, but we've denied kids that. And and interestingly enough, as we've discussed, uh, I guess it was probably a few months ago before the whole COVID thing obliterated every other conversation in America. We were talking about how risky playgrounds were making a, a comeback because all the child psychologists had said what was incredibly obvious to every, you know, sane human is that this is, it's not good for kids to never let them have adventures. Well, we got this note from Sam, an email. He's been involved in parks and recreation. Not the show, but the actual, uh, you know, parks and recreation for 50 years. It's a long time. Yeah, and I just, I want to read you some of his note, but he says, I can safely say you guys are correct as to eliminating fun and adventure from children's playgrounds. But then he points out that it all goes back to a UC Davis professor. Awesome. Nationwide, the, the, the nationwide trend of veal cafe playgrounds. He's, he's Before no you even go us. any further, this, this, right. this shocks me not. The entire don't eat fat but eat sugar thing came out of like ass study 
in the late 60s, and mm-hmm. we did that forever. I believe the don't give your kids real mom breast milk, but this is like out of a one bogus study. Right. Um, and then the eliminate straws from America was not only from one study, but it was from a study from a nine-year-old's poor, poorly researched paper. <laughs> and we, we changed the way the world of, uh, handles straws. So this sort of thing happens all the time. So I went into this ready to demonize UC Davis professor Seymour Gold, who's no longer here uh, to defend himself, which is frankly convenient. Um, <clears throat> I went in ready to demonize him. Then I read some of his stuff, and I thought, you know what? I can't demonize him. But then I read the note from Sam and got back to wanting to demonize him. So here you go. This Seymour Gold chap, a supposed expert in playground safety, in 1981, he was asked to take a look at this topic because of a couple of court cases that said towns and schools and whatever could be held liable if your kid falls off the monkey bars. Okay, well, you can't blame somebody for looking into that if that becomes the reality. Right, this jackass, stupid America-ruining court case at the dawn of the excessive uh, lawsuit liability culture that we have now. Wow, so that's interesting. So we now know the date. It was 1981 when all this crap started. The idea that if your kid fell at the park at school, somehow the school was going to have to pay for it. 1981. Well, it's it's good to know. So this UC Davis professor, Seymour Gold, and this is where I stopped demonizing him briefly in my mind. He uh, wrote the guidelines and did all sorts of studies and, and the rest of it, and then was the expert in advising uh, anybody who had a playground how to avoid or, or limit their liability, how to reduce it, right? So I thought, okay, he was just responding to a need. No, then he made his fortune, or he made a fair amount of money, as an expert witness for people who were suing public agencies and playground manufacturers. At the same time, he was working as a professor and bringing in extra income from various lawsuits as an expert, dipping into the taxpayers twice. Wow. Yeah. So he wrote, wow, that's something. Yeah. So, uh, again, at, at the beginning of it, he was responding to an utterly angering need, but a legitimate need, but then went on as the leading expert in the world to uh, make sure your your town, your your city, your school got good and screwed every time a kid fell. Well, yeah. It's kind of exciting that the very park that my kid plays at might be across the street from that dude's old house. Dude, I'll bet he designed it. I'll bet he was a key person in either designing it literally or he passed on, I think, in the early 2000s. Um, but his principles are 100% behind all the playgrounds you see uh, in America these days. And it was all over. Uh, that's right. This is the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to brace yourselves. The co-host is about to say a naughty, naughty word. It was all over liability. And lawsuits and and people making profit off of claiming that something bad should never happen. And if anything bad ever does happen, somebody needs to write somebody else a check. How which did, is such a perversion of, of, of humans relating to each other. How was there not some sort of government intervention at the time? Somebody, you know, you, a quick writing of legis, legislation that says you can't hold schools liable for this. 
or it will it will lead to what it obviously led to. Right. Because any I'm, any normal grown up would say if if you're going to make the schools responsible for anybody getting hurt on the playgrounds, then we're not going to be able to have playgrounds. Well, the reason is because of the way democracy actually works. It's not the popular will. It's who has lots of money and powerful lobbyists and kids having fun and kids learning to assess risk and deal with it. Uh, didn't have powerful lobbyists. I mean, at the same time, 1981. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. It doesn't matter. Um, I mean, Congress granted Major League Baseball an antitrust exemption for many, many decades, but Congress couldn't step up and say, hey, Look, it's important for kids to be able to climb and take risks. And once in a while, a kid is going to fall and break an arm. And once in a just it's practically infinitesimal, a child might die if they don't assess the risk carefully and they fall and and hit their head. It almost never, ever happens. Um, But Congress couldn't step up and do that at the time. Why can't they they do it now? Why can't it happen now? Why can't we write? Why can't we write legislation that says when people get hurt on the playground equipment at the park, it's not the school's fault? I don't think the American Bar Association would ever let it happen because there's so many ambulance chasers that pay dues that I mean that's their living. Hmm, I'd like to hear a smart lawyer tell us that if you're listening to this podcast, email us or whatever. I'd like to hear the explanation for why that doesn't happen now. I gotta believe you'd get majority support, just like if you put it to a poll in the country and explained it properly. Right, some sort of blanket hold harmless for municipal playgrounds. Yeah, email us, mailbag at armstrongandgetty.com. It could be because there's no town that's going to put in like a wood chipper for the kids to play with and like a running chainsaw and that sort of stuff. I mean, come on, or javelins. They'll just have a rack of javelins out there at the city park. Instead of having a sandbox, we thought we'd have a box full of shards of glass. (laughs) Exactly. It's not going to happen. Kids, pull the pin on the grenade. Then you see this uh, lever thing. It's very important. Now you you have, don't careful, Johnny. You have eight seconds. Eight, but not nine. Right. Don't count too slow. How many of you know how to count to eight? All of you. <laughs> That's great. Let's do it together now, shall we? One, two. Yeah. Nobody's going to do that. My son's school, if it rains, they can't play in the playground the next day because the grass might still be wet enough that somebody could fall and twist an ankle. and Really? The, yeah. It might be across the street from that guy's house. So as a well kid, we used to play in the mud. We used to of love course. that stuff. Of course you did. Do they never water the grass? We took sleds on the school bus to school and, and, and went down the hill. It was a sheet of ice. And I can't, it had to be 30 miles an hour. And now the kids can't run on wet grass. Now you can't they run on wet grass. And there, I'm sure, speaking of academics, there is a learned study somewhere about the the uh, the stages civilizations go through, and they probably describe the uh, overly cautious, litigious, you know, uh, stage of a mature society. God, if there's one, if I if I could do something with my life, it would be you know fight this and change it in my lifetime. I, you know, I'm not I'm not the right kind of guy because I, <laughs> I don't like paperwork. I don't like lawyers. I don't like slow moving. Anything I don't like meetings, but God, I could, I could march for this sort of thing. Yeah, it would be twenty five years of banging your head yeah. against this in meetings and meeting yep. with politicians and right. Yeah, but uh, very yeah. slow growing movement, which is the way democracies work. Yeah, yeah. Gosh, with very powerful rich forces against you. Well, and it's so insidious too. If you think about human development, what we're doing to our kids, turning them into terrified veal calves who never take. And learn how to deal with risk. And it's the helicopter parent, the snowplow parent thing. It's just, it's all 
of a piece. Although what's insidious about it is the lawsuit thing's just greed. It's a little bit of do-gooderism and a lot of greed. Whereas the whole overly cautious society thing, I think, is is less about greed. Uh, or, well, I don't know. Maybe it is because once you have a certain number of lawsuits, I mean, we've yelled and railed about school administrators being so friggin' paranoid, but then realized, well, there ain't going to be a little a school for Johnny to go to if they get their ass sued. Right. So um, I don't know. I, I, these stories always make me so sad because uh, long run, a country that behaves this way does not stay the strongest, most prosperous, most vibrant culture on the earth. It mm-hmm. just does not over no. time. Well, I would suggest to you, and this may be a little of a stretch, but not much. What do you think that, happens if you fall off the playground in all, in all these other up-and-coming countries around the world? You dust yourself off and go on about your business. You say, be well, careful next time. I don't think it's much of a stretch to say that the person who, who, who climbs on the monkey bars and takes risks and learns to assess them and, and maybe rides their bike a little too fast and wipes out a couple of times, there are a hundred examples, careens down the hill, the icy hill on a sled. Those are the people who start businesses because they understand risk and they're not afraid of it. Those are the entrepreneurs, the, well, literally the risk takers in society because there is no profit without risk. And I'm afraid we're just crushing that. But I don't know. I do know, actually. I don't know exactly what to do about it. Dig up this uh, UC Davis guy and, well, never mind. More 30-foot high, high monkey bars over asphalt. Greased. Somebody <laughs> greases them every morning. And, and i got to reconsider that wood chipper idea. <laughs> Armstrong and Getty. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Featuring our podcast, One More Thing. Get more info at armstrongandgetty.com. <laughs> you famously hate modern art, yes, and I you're do. reading a thousand-page book on Andy Warhol? Well, I'm what? sure I won't read the whole thousand pages, but... Uh, yeah, I do famously hate modern art, and I, do, I think it's stupid, and I still, I've done more research on it, and I'm, con- I'm convinced I'm right. It is stupid. Um... But the whole Andy Warhol commentary on uh, fame and materialism, I find just freaking fascinating. Oh, okay. Now you got me. Freaking now fascinating. He, he, may, he may have actually been a, He was either one of the great geniuses of all time or a complete fraud, and there's like almost no in-between. It's just one but, or the other. Although there have been frauds who are geniuses, because once they got an opening, they exploited it ingeniously. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So maybe as an artist, he was a fraud, but as a making himself a worldwide celebrity, he was authentic as hell. I'm a little with art the way I am with philosophy. Like, I can get into it, and I think, okay, I'm starting to grasp it, and then, ah, I lost it. <laughs> I just, <laughs> I lost the thread of it, or the next day, I, I get really into it, and it's deep, and I think, ah, I've really learned something here. And then the next day, I can't remember what it was that I learned. But, like, when, when he showed up with his... uh his soup cans and his Brillo boxes that he's famous for. It was a commentary on the abstract art preceding it. To So to a certain extent, perhaps, because nobody knows, to a certain extent, he might have been saying modern art was crap. Okay, mm. if that's art, this is art. Who's going to say what's art and what's not? I mean, well, that was, was like part that, of what he was doing. That pee your pants challenge thing we were talking about. The guy's point, I think, was how stupid are people? I'll bet they'll do this. And he was right. 
I've, I've just been scrolling through his quotes here, and, uh, you know, he's got some things that are ridiculous. People should fall in love with their eyes closed. Okay, thanks, Andy. But I thought this was interesting. Being good in business is the most fascinating kind of art. Making money is art, and working is art, and good business is the best art. Yeah. How interesting. Yeah. Super, super deep and interesting. I've uh, always hated his haircut, so I really couldn't get into almost his an, art. Almost entirely wigs. He went bald in his 20s. Huh. Had terrible skin, so he's a very unattractive dude, right? Um, and that—that's part of what drove him in in uh, in a bunch of different weird ways. But yeah, wow, you know, there's and he was a super genius. He went to he went to college when he was seventeen, got a job on um, in New York right off the bat doing commercial art for a bunch of companies, and and got rich doing that. And that's what wow. funded him getting into you know doing his own thing. I'll be damned. See, you know, it's funny. I'd always gotten this. You know, this one-sided impression of the guy. You know, the cliched Andy Warhol, you know, story. And I, I didn't know some of those things. And the fact that he was an unattractive little smart guy, who probably was a complete misfit in oh, yeah. a lot of ways. Um, uh, that's, that's the sort of person I root for a lot, partly because, uh, you know, at least one or two of my kids' answers to that description. But, but then his, when, you know, when he gets into his commentary on celebrity and, 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 and fame and, what is art and what is not in commercialism and our, and, and, you know, at a time when we had really post war, he was born in 28. So he, you know, he lived through commercialism really coming to age and people being so concerned about stuff and brands in a way that nobody really ever had in human history. Certainly not the middle class hadn't in human mm-hmm. history. Uh, yeah. I, I think that's some really, really deep stuff. You want some really trivial Andy Warhol trivia? John wrote us an email when we were talking about it during the radio show. I uh, read somewhere that on the day that Babe Ruth hit his last home run, I believe it was at Pittsburgh, Andy Warhol and his older brother were in the right field seats, and his brother ended up with the home run ball. Wow. Is that true? Little Johnny Warhol. I don't know. <laughs> um, no, but he, I don't know if it's true. John claims it is, and it's an odd lie. <laughs> so he comes up with this art that, you know, is what? how is this art? You got stuff from a grocery store. How is this art? But it's a commentary on art, and it blew people's minds. Well, so then it became, then celebrities got into it. And whether, so at that point, whether it's real or not, now you're into the Kardashian thing, right? Now you're just famous for being famous, and you're hanging around famous people. Once Bob Dylan and Mick Jagger come to your studio and hang out with you, then everybody else wants to hang out with you, and they want to hang out with you because and it just it just spirals. You, right. so, there's almost no stopping it at that point. Yeah, yeah. Really, and then the most interesting nugget of all that I think I've come out of this is he's a practicing Catholic who went to mass three times a week. Wow, wow. How do you mix that into everything? Which I, really, I wonder... which which leads me to believe, um, because he gave different answers every interview he ever he ever gave so knowing what he actually believed was difficult the fact that he went to mass three times a week and was a practicing catholic makes me think he did have a negative view of commercialism and celebrity and that sort of right. stuff that'd be my guess well i was going to say i'm i'm absolutely intrigued by the question of how he felt about what he had created cuz he doesn't sound like the sort of guy who thrives on the shallow trendy approval of people he doesn't even know well and so he got a bump from europe in sort of the way that uh you know the anti-trump craze if if it hurts trump we like it so him becoming popular europe thought he was criticizing america 
So he ah. became just the darling of Europe and just was so celebrated there. And he could go there and just be treated like a king and meet all the most important people and all the biggest celebrities and everything like that. But it's not certainly true or necessarily true that he was criticizing America. Hmm. Who knows? But they thought he was, so that's good enough for us. He's anti-America, so he's got to be somebody we like here in Europe. But he might have been just the quote um, uh, Sean was reading, just celebrating, look what we've done in America, creating these businesses and and mass-produced food for, for people and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm like you with art and philosophy. There's, okay, so it was actually a commentary on, but not a criticism, but a, it was actually praising to that. I don't know. And if you think this is all a bunch of crap and stupid and meaningless, that may have been his point. <laughs> ah, <laughs> which is that? It's in, Somebody needs to tell me what I'm supposed to think about art. His entire point might have been this whole art thing is stupid. <laughs> People paying for it and and becoming a celebrity for it, it's just dumb. So, again, it was the 19, you know, whatever, 55 to 75 version of, I'll bet if I peed my pants, people would click on this. Yeah, sort of. Or it wasn't, I don't know, and he's not telling you. Mm. You're listening to the best of the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty.